0: So how y'all doing? I'm excited I get to share God's word with you. You know, I just love the Bible. I love the word of God. Anybody else out there feel the same way? Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's uh, I don't know. I've been studying it and teaching it for decades. And I still love it. This is good. So without any further ado, I just want to get into the lesson because I've been excited to share with you all week. We started in the book of Luke, and if you remember, in chapter 2, Jesus was born miraculously. Chapter 3, he's baptized. Chapter 4, he's launched into ministry. So we're going to be looking at chapter 4 today. But before we get into chapter 4 and his temptation in the wilderness, um, we got to backtrack just a little bit, because we talked just a little bit about his miraculous birth, but there's a little section in there that talks about Jesus as a child. So we're going to have to take a look at that before we go any further. I'm in Luke chapter 2. Verses 42 through 52. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast. Other books of the Bible tell us it was Passover. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem with his family, according to the custom, verse 43. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. And after three days, they found him. After three days, how would you feel if your 12-year-old was gone after, like, three days? <laughs> right? Wouldn't you freak out? I mean, we put it on the freeways here when children disappears, The whole world stops to find children. Hey, have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't. Let's go look for him. The first 10, 15 minutes, no worries. You walk to the tents near you, the horse is near you. After about a half an hour to an hour, you're saying, man, where did he go? After a few hours, you're starting to freak out. And what do you do? You can't call 911. There is no cell phone. You're like, well, where could he possibly have gone? I don't know. Well, let's retrace our steps. Three days worth of retracing our steps. Finally, they find him at the temple. Think mom was happy? he's just sitting there chit-chatting. You know she was upset. So after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed, astounded, shocked at his understanding and his answers. But his parents, not so much. When his parents saw him, they were amazed too, but for a different reason. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been worried to death. We've been hunting everywhere for you. Why did you do this? It's just too funny. He's the son of God getting chewed out. You know, it happens to the best of them, I guess. You can never please a parent. (laughs) Can you imagine yelling at the son of God? Well, they asked him a question. Why did you treat us like this? Didn't you know we were scared to death? We were anxiously searching for you? And he asked them a question. He said, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom in stature, and in favor with God and men. So Jesus ditched his parents. It said specifically, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So maybe he didn't ditch his parents, he just started to hanging out with his real dad. He was still with his father, just the right one. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Now, that's interesting. Why didn't they understand what he was saying to them? He was speaking in plain English, Hebrew. Actually, he really wasn't speaking plainly at all. This is the first recorded instance in the Bible of Jesus saying something and people being confused by what he said. And he's going to make a living at it a little later. He calls them parables. So when I asked myself the question, why didn't they understand what he was saying, I came up with two possible answers. Maybe you can think of a third. The first one that jumped into my mind was, well, he said I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house. Did they not know he was the son of God? Well, on paper they knew, or at least they should have known. The first time he's called the son of God in the Bible is Gabriel telling Mary she's going to give birth to the Messiah and he will be the son of God. So, the fact that she didn't understand he was the son of God, referring to God as his father, maybe that's not the reason. I mean, it's possible because even though she was told that by the angel, I'm sure she didn't fully grasp everything that meant. She was, her head was probably spinning through this whole thing and didn't quite get it. So it's possible that when he said God was his, was his father and he had to be about his father's business, that she just didn't quite know what he was talking about. That's one possibility. Uh, Luke one thirty five, if you'll throw it up there, just to show you. This is just the first chapter of the New Testament, at least Luke's version of it. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. She should have known he was the Son of God. So maybe there's another reason. In one version of the Bible, it said, I have to be in my father's house. In another version of the Bible, it says, I have to be about my father's business, Now, that's not the same thing. So I looked it up. I went to some commentaries that analyzed the Greek. And actually, it's a confusing statement. No translation translates it literally. They all have to add what they think it means. Because if they translated it just straight across, he would say something like this. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's? Father's what? Since he was in the temple, they just throw in the words house. But the implication of the Greek is also not just in his father's, but kind of like in his father's business, doing things with his dad, doing things for his father. And that's why one says, in my father's house, the other says, about my father's business. Because that's the implication of the Greek. But literally, it's just in or at my father's. And so he said something peculiar. He called God his father, and he said it in a peculiar way. They didn't understand what he meant, so it's no wonder that we today are a little confused about what he meant, too, and the translators get it different ways. But as interesting as that was, I want to know why he had to be there. He's 12. Why wasn't he there at 10? Why isn't he there at 15? He said, I had to be about my father. Why at 12? I don't know. I do know that there's this custom amongst Jewish people called a bar mitzvah. And I did a little bit of research and found out that that custom does go back to the days of Jesus. It was different, but there was some type of formal bar mitzvah in the days of Jesus. In fact, in Morocco, which is not far from there, um, their bar mitzvahs are at the age of 12. So it's possible that this was some sort of bar mitzvah thing. But it couldn't have been a formal bar mitzvah. Because, like, what? His parents weren't invited? (laughs) You know, they would have known. So the idea, though, of a bar mitzvah is a coming of age spiritually. That's the point of the whole thing. Where you come up before the assembly, and you demonstrate that you're mature and knowledgeable enough to take part spiritually in the community, and even to lead in the synagogue if necessary. And so they found him in the temple, talking to the teachers, Maybe this was some sort of of coming-of-age ceremony, and it was time, and that's why he did it. Don't know. I'm just throwing out what little I do know. But the most amazing thing in this, to me, is verse 51. It says, He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. He was obedient to his parents. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in human flesh, What did his parents have that he didn't? Were they smarter than him, more holy than him, better than him? In nothing. And yet he was obedient to them. Why? Because that's what God requires. The fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Even the son of God has to obey the commandments. What a lesson we have here. They were better than him in nothing. He was God in human flesh, and yet he submitted himself to his parents because this is God's way. Humility and submission. And I'm just, that just blows my mind. But I get it. What if he didn't honor the fifth commandment? Then he would have been a sinner. He had to honor his parents. And I don't think it was grievous burden to him either. He loved pleasing God and he wanted to honor his parents. And the reason we have a problem humbling ourselves and being submissive to people, be they parents, presidents, or bosses, is because of our own arrogance, our own pride. He didn't have arrogance or pride. In fact, he understood that when you submit yourselves to people, that elevates you spiritually. You want to raise up, lower yourself. Jesus was probably like, I'm happy to submit to my parents as the son of God. This is just the spiritual thing to do. I'm in we got to have a mind more like Jesus' mind, not like our mind. Is it, can you imagine, remember some years later, he's only 12 here. When he's 30, he catches his disciples arguing on the side of the road who's going to be the greatest of us. Jesus, at 12 years old, already had that answer. Everybody else. We don't elevate ourselves. We lower ourselves and let God elevate. So I could just imagine shaking his head, saying, guys, you just don't get it, do you? That's what the pagans do. It's not supposed to be that way with you. He who wants to be greatest must be humble and servant of all. I'm sure the guys were like, what? That doesn't work. The Apostle Paul probably has the most profound passage in all the Scripture about humility. And he talks about Christ in the passage. Now, I'm going to read to you from a version I don't often read to you from. It's called the CEV, or the Contemporary English Version, because the way it words it here is just very helpful. I like it. So, let me read to you what Paul teaches us about humility. Think the same way that Christ Jesus thought. Christ was truly God, but he did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Christ was humble. He obeyed God and even died on a cross. He did not try to remain equal with God. He gave up everything and became nothing. Volunteered, did it willingly, did it happily. He humbled himself to be born a human. Can you imagine the distance between being born a human and starting out as God? There is nothing in... If you were born a maggot the distance is greater. (laughs) Because there's nothing... I mean, God is infinite. We're finite. Maggots are finite. We're on the same scale. God's got his own scale. So when God humbled himself, in one sense, he became less than a maggot. For our benefit. How's that for humility? He's the king of kings. What was he born? A humble Jewish boy in a manger. Wasn't born a Roman rich in a palace. Was born a persecuted oppressed, humble Jewish boy. And not a Jewish priestly boy, not a Jewish rich merchant boy, but the son of a craftsman. So poor that they couldn't even afford a place to live. You're saying, Steve, there was no room for them at the inn. Yeah, I know there was no room for them because they didn't have the money. Tell you what, you got enough money, there's always room. You know what I'm saying? Well, we're sold out. Fine, I'll pay them all five times the amount that they paid to get in there and I'll get them out and the house is mine. You got enough money, there's always room. They didn't have that kind of luxury. Why didn't they travel with a caravan, with tents? And They didn't have those luxuries. They were poor. He humbled himself. And then he humbled himself and submitted to human parents. Now, that passage I read for you from the Apostle Paul starts out like this. Think the same way that Jesus thought. I like how the King James and the others put it even more. Let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's telling us this really cool thing about Jesus, not to make Jesus look cool, he is, but that we'll copy him, that we'll emulate him, that we'll have the same mind. And if he can humble himself, we better be able to humble ourselves. For him, it was a lot further to go. For us, it's just a little change in attitude. So that's it. That's the last thing we hear about Jesus in the Bible as a child. So in one chapter he's born, the next chapter he's 12, and in the next chapter he's 30. And that brings us to chapter 4, when he enters fully into the ministry. Remember, he's born in chapter 2, baptized, immersed into the ministry in a sense in chapter 3, and then immediately driven out to the wilderness for a test. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Yeah, he was hungry. He might have been God, but he was a man. He was 100% human. I've never gone 40 days without eating. I can make it 40 minutes. (laughs) I'll push it to two hours and I'm getting hungry. Four hours and I'm getting cranky. Five hours, I'm going to bite somebody's head off. And I'm being generous. I'm probably biting heads off around three or four hours. 40 days? Now, listen, don't go out there and try to fast for 40 days. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a special time in the Son of God's life. He had to do this. You don't. This would probably kill you. It might not, but it probably would. And it would definitely make you ill. But this is what he had to do as the Son of God. I just want to tell you after 40 days, he was hungry. So when the Bible says that, just step into it. Figure how hungry you'd be after 40 days. It says he was led into the desert to be tempted. Temptation... Oh, don't do that again. Temptation has really two definitions. One is to entice, to seduce, to allure. That's the word we're most familiar with. But temptation also means test. There's a couple different types of temptation. There's the enticing kind. You just had to get some chocolate in there, didn't you? See, if those were just glazed, I'd be like, ah, oh, whatever. You know, I can do with a glaze or not do with a glaze. But there's nothing chocolate that's not good. You know, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be eating animals. But there's nothing in the Bible that says we won't be eating chocolate. So I just want you to know it's a theological truth. There's going to be chocolate in heaven. There's different types of temptation, too. But temptation can also mean test. The same word that I just read to you that was translated temptation occurs a little later when Jesus is answering the devil. And he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It uses the word test there. But it's the same word, temptation. Exact same word. So the word has a range of meaning. Now, in our culture, we are most familiar with tests because of school. Every week, every month, every quarter, we've got to take a test. And what's the point of the test? The point of the test is to see if you've acquired... The knowledge but really from our perspective as students there's only two possible outcomes we passed it or we failed it so to us a test is all about whether or not we're going to pass and fail and most of the time we don't know we take the test and nervously wait and hope for the best but that's not the only kind of testing imagine if you manufacture steel beams And a bridge company says, hey, we want to start using your steel beam for our bridges. Are they strong enough? And you're like, yeah, they're strong enough. Prove it. All right, we'll prove it. How much do you want this to carry? Well, a steel beam that size should carry 10,000 pounds. Watch, we'll put 15,000 on it. Boom, no problem. What was the point of the test? To see if it might fail or not? No, they knew it wasn't going to fail. It was to prove that it wouldn't. Some tests are to prove that you won't fail. So Jesus wasn't led into the wilderness to be tempted as if he'd be allured or seduced by sin. Not a chance. He was brought into the wilderness to demonstrate that he can't fail. To have the experience and to overcome. To be associated with the the test just like we are so he could be a great high priest. There was no temptation in Jesus in that sense of the word. So let me tell you a little story. I am a professional rock climber been climbing rocks pain-free for 30 years. I'm the best in my field. I'm out camping with a friend, and I find a hiker stranded at the bottom of a cliff with a broken leg. He can't climb up. The only way down is rappel. Well, I can help him get down, because I don't go anywhere without my rope. So I yell down, hey, want some help? Yeah! We're gonna have to rope you down, rappel you down. Uh, no! I'm scared to death of heights, and that rope doesn't look very thick. I'm a big guy. I weigh 250 pounds. I said, dude, I'm a professional rock climber. I've been climbing rocks all my life. That rope can hold you, your mom, and an elephant. Don't worry about it. I don't think so. Let me prove it to you. So I wrapped the rope around myself, and I shimmy on down the mountain. And I say, See? It'll hold me. Yeah, it'll hold you, but it will hold both of us. The idea of the test for the rope is not to wonder whether it's going to work or not, but to demonstrate that it will so this guy will have confidence enough to go down the mountain. Or maybe confidence enough to, uh, you know, trust in the Lord Jesus because he can face down the devil. I don't know. Rich, grab an end of this. Nathaniel, do you mind? At your end. Now, here's the thing. None of you have seen this rope, other than me showing it to you right now, but I am confident that this rope is strong enough to carry a man down a mountain. I've got two very big, strong men right here. It's not a tug-of-war, but I do want you to pull tight on the rope to demonstrate the rope's strength, would you? Go ahead. Okay, let's try again. All right, good, guys, thanks. That's a strong rope. It'll take you down the mountain. Appreciate it. The Greek, the Hebrew, it's all the same. Temptation doesn't have to mean the possibility of failure. It's just a way of demonstrating your inability ability to fail, demonstrating your mettle, and having the experience it puts you through. A test is an opportunity to succeed, grow, and demonstrate your mettle. I want you to know those donuts have been sitting there all morning and I have not yet touched one. It depends what you do when the temptation faces you as to whether you're going to succeed or not. Would you uh, hold those for me, please? Thank you. (laughs) Temptation is only a risk When you're weak. And Jesus was not weak. Jesus had a brother, half brother, same mom, different dad, brother from another mother? No, brother from another father. His name is James. And he wrote the book of James in the Bible. And he talked about temptation. Listen to what he said, probably the most profound verse in the Bible on temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Imagine I had 15 pounds of cocaine right here and a straw. And a razor blade. So, it does nothing for me. You could put me in a safe, in a bank, with 30 tons of cocaine and a bunch of straws, and I will never want to sniff this stuff. No enticement whatsoever. Now, you take a coke addict, even a recovering or former coke addict, you put him in that room with with that cocaine, he's got a struggle on his hands. So what's the problem? As I'm trying to tell you, enticement doesn't come from without, it comes from within. We're all enticed and seduced by different things. You know, you know what I think donuts are? I think they're man bait. (laughs) I don't get cocaine. But I get chocolate. I understand the allure of chocolate. And you know, I do things to maintain a healthier lifestyle than I would if I didn't do those things. See, the way we deal with temptation, that's up to you. You can step into a bakery every day and tell yourself you're not going to eat donuts. Or you can stay away from the bakery. So here's what I do. When I go shopping, I don't get donuts and I don't get lots of chocolate because I know if I do I'm going to be sitting home at 8 o'clock at night watching Duck Dynasty (laughs) they're going to open up one of their big buffets and all of a sudden my mouth's going to water and I'm not going to want to make a big old turkey or go bass fishing or duck hunting but a chocolate donut right now would go down really good and a glass of milk why have one chocolate donut when there's two in there I mean, the other one will become lonely. So you've got to have two chocolate donuts. And that's why I don't buy them at the store. See, I preempt my tempt. I'm strong at the store, weak at home. So I don't bring it home much. Moderation is the key. I'm not much into abstinence with donuts, just moderation. Now, Dairy Queen is my downfall. they build one next door to me, I'm going to have to move. But I'm a good 12, 14 miles from the nearest Dairy Queen, and I'm a lazy guy. So I'm good. I could be hungering for a blizzard. I'm not going to get one. But if I happen to be driving by one, it's another story. That's the way temptation is. And by the way, temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It's what you do after the enticement. You could say no, and now it's just become an opportunity for you to be strong and to grow and to succeed. Or you can say, yeah. There are ways of dealing with temptation. Rich is saying, Steve, my brother, isn't there a passage in the Bible that says don't cause your brother to stumble? (laughs) Yeah, it's in there. (laughs) Jesus was not weak. He did not give in to the devil. We're going to look at his temptations, two of the three he went through, and learn what he did so we can do the same and grow in our fighting of the devil and in fighting temptation, and those two are not always the same. There are temptations that are de- devilish, and there are temptations that aren't. Those temptations are more deviled, cakeish. they tied to the flesh, not so much the Spirit. All right, so, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, "'If you're the Son of God,' tell this stone to become bread. Now, isn't that just like the devil? 40 days of no food. He is hungry. And what does the devil do? Goes straight for the jugular. Goes right for the hunger gene. He knew Jesus was hungry. He went for the weakest part of Jesus he could go after. Where he was the most vulnerable right now, food. And so the devil said, ha, 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 ha. I can give you food. What's your weakest point? Do you even know? Which, if you think about it for a couple minutes, you'll, you'll say, yeah, I know what my weakest point is. That's where the devil's coming after you. That's where you've got to leave your donuts at the store and go home. Because I'm telling you, you bring those donuts home, the devil knows. He's coming after you. And you're going to eat your donuts. So here's what Jesus did. Before I tell you Specifically, we've got to step back because he was doing something for 40 days. What was he doing for 40 days? Praying and fasting. So, when the devil came to tempt him, from the devil's perspective, Jesus was at his weakest. But from spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, the devil came at the wrong time because Jesus was at his strongest. He'd been fasting and praying and communing with God for 40 days. Hey, devil's kind of stupid. You're going to tempt somebody. Don't do it after 40 days of communion with God. But see, the devil doesn't know. He's not smart. He's not spiritual. Jesus was extremely strong at this moment. He's the son of God. He was always strong. But you understand my point. He was like, bring it on. I'm just with God for 40 days. I've been fasting and praying. There are no temptations going to come near me. You want to be able to resist temptation, you better be prayed up, is what I'm trying to tell you. Pray, pray, pray. That is the first key to fighting temptation, is prayer. In fact, Jesus was in the garden, if you recall, right before his crucifixion. What was he doing? Praying. And he told his disciples, and I quote, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. But they didn't. They were tired. They chose to sleep instead. And when the soldiers came, they freaked, they feared, and they fled. Jesus went along. Now, theoretically, if Jesus wasn't prayed up, maybe he would have freaked and fled too. Theoretically. But he was prayed up. He was doing the right thing. We need to do the right thing. If Jesus needs to pray, we need to pray too. So the number one key, the first key to resisting temptation is prayer. Now, let's look at another temptation. Verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered. It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There's that word again. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now I find this just interesting. I'm sure the Holy Spirit knew this. I don't know if Luke did when he wrote. But Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. And Jesus turns it around on the devil and quotes the Scripture and says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't tempt God. You're trying to test me, man. You're testing God. Don't do that. What did Jesus do to overcome the devil? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it says it took him to the pinnacle of the temple told him to throw himself down. I want to show you where the pinnacle of the temple probably was. Let me get out my handy-dandy laser pointer. What you're looking at here is a model of the first century temple. This is something what that temple looked like in the days of Jesus. This is at the Israel Museum. And uh, every time I lead a group to Israel, I make sure we go here. So if you come with me in April, we'll go here. And you'll see this model close up. This is the entire Temple Mount. The whole thing is technically the temple. This outer courtyard out here, anybody could come to, even if they weren't Jewish. You get into an inner courtyard and you can't see the wall here. They didn't put it. There's a place for women. You get a little closer just for men, a little closer just for priests. And then in here, that, in that big door, by the way, that door is at least 100 feet high. In that door, that's where Zechariah went. And that's where he prayed when the angel Gabriel came to him. And then there was a curtain. And only the high priest could go in there once a year. Right? So where's the pinnacle of the temple? Most people think it's right here. Now, before I tell you a little more about the pinnacle right here, I want to talk to you about this building. That's probably where the money changers were when he flipped over their tables. They were probably all set up in there because it's part of the temple, but not part of the temple, kind of, you know. This, by the way, is about 45 acres to give you an idea of scope and size. Big honkin' building. This building right here spans the whole width of that 45 acre Temple Mount. This is, by some accounts, the biggest building in the world in those days. And it sat right there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. People think this is the pinnacle because if you look at the, especially the valley here, and you look at the height of the walls all around, this is the highest point. Let's uh, take another look, another picture, please. So, this is that same big building, the biggest in the world this would have been the pinnacle most people think. And if that valley was right there, and I'm not sure that it was, but it very well could have been, then this temple, which might have been 100 feet high here or whatever it was, I don't know, would have had that extra depth below. Whatever the height was, it was enough to jump off and die for sure. How many of you have ever looked down from 100 or so feet? Yeah, it's scary. You don't want to be jumping, you know? Next picture. This is one artist's rendering of what it would have looked like. And if the valley wasn't there, then it would have been cobbled. It would have been stoned with, you know, marble stone and stuff. That would have been fun to jump off of. So there's a good chance the devil brought him right there and said, Hey, man, you think you're special? You're the son of God. Jump off. Doesn't the Bible say God will protect you? And the the devil was right. The Bible does say God would protect him. He quoted the scripture right. He just applied it wrong. And Jesus set him straight. You're not supposed to test God. In fact, next week's lesson or the following lesson, we're going to see the verse the devil quotes played out. They're going to try to throw Jesus off the mountain of Nazareth to kill him. And it says he just walks through their midst and passes by because God protected him. It wasn't his time to die there. So several times they try to kill Jesus, and it doesn't work because God protects him until it's his time, and then God lets it go. Um, One more possibility, the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, let's go back to if you don't mind if you can one more and one more sorry all right what we we've been focusing in on this area here which most people think is the pinnacle of the temple but i want to focus here i told you this door is at least 100 feet high right here plus there's building on top of it now go forward two slides another artist's rendition and one more he's standing on the top of that so the idea is that that's the pinnacle of the temple okay of the Temple Mount, that would be the highest point. Of the whole complex, probably the other point. Or maybe not. That still might be the highest point. So there's indecision in scholarly circles as to what exactly the pinnacle of the Temple was. But those are the two primary contenders I, sh- I shared with you. So as um, I told you, the, the devil quoted the Scripture right. He quoted, quoted Psalm 91, 11, and 12. Listen. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways... They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. There it is. First key to resisting the devil, or resisting temptation, is prayer. The second key to resisting temptation is God's word. Devil said, do something. Jesus said, no, it's written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Throw yourself down. No, it's written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus resisted temptation by the Bible, by knowing the Scripture and relying on the Scripture other than on the temptation. So, when you're tempted, answer this question. What does the Bible say about it? There's nothing in the Bible that says I can't have a chocolate donut. (laughs) Mmm. I can't have the whole dozen, though. That would be kind of gluttony, wouldn't it? So I won't be a glutton, but... A little chocolate donut here and there never hurt anybody. When you're struggling with a temptation, a petty kind or a major kind, ask yourself one question. What does the Bible say about it? Not only will the Bible give you the knowledge, but also the strength. Get prayed up and rely on the Word of God rather than that temptation. And resist the devil, and he will flee. What are you struggling with right now? Go home. Consult the Word of God on it. Pray. Call some of the people you trust and respect. Ask them to pray with you. And then leave the donuts on the shelf and go home. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the lesson and the victory of Jesus. And may we learn that lesson and learn it well. May we resist the devil and temptation. Give us the strength and the passion to be holy and righteous, just like Jesus was.